Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. I want you to imagine with me, if you would, we're going to do a little time travel, if that's okay. Something a bit different, so if it helps you to close your eyes, uh, we're going to do that. Not only are we going to time travel, we're going to go to the other side of the world. Uh, We're going to go to the city of Rome, and it is going to be 82 AD. So we are going way, way back. And uh, to put it into a little bit of context for you, uh, it's not just going to be kind of me and all of us. Let's just go as a small group because otherwise we're going to freak the Romans out. So let's just have like a handful of us. Okay? So it's you and four or five of your close friends, maybe your family, maybe the people you came to church with. I'll come along as well because uh, I'm the storyteller and otherwise you'd just be wandering through the streets of Rome with, why are we here? Anyway, Here's the situation uh, in 82 AD. The emperor of the age is a guy called Domitian, uh, and he is the brother of Titus. Now, let me set this up for you. Vespasian up here, this is Domitian and Titus' father. Uh, Vespasian was the emperor. Uh, Before he was the emperor, he was a general in the Roman army, and he was sent by Nero in 66 AD to go and destroy the city of Rome, to take down the Jewish rebellion. It took him a little while. Uh, Nero was assassinated, and Vespasian had to go back to Rome and take over as emperor. And so he left his son, Titus, to finish the job. And Titus did. Eventually, Titus went back to Rome and took over as emperor when Vespasian died. Titus was only emperor for a couple of years before he died. And so Domitian takes over. And that is where we enter Rome. It's 82 AD. Now, as we arrive, we get to the Roman Forum, and word spreads pretty quick through Rome that a group of 21st century travelers from a far distant land have arrived in Rome. And so someone comes to us and invites us, says, Domitian has heard that you are here and would like to invite you to a party, a huge elaborate party that's happening at the Colosseum to celebrate the end of 100 days of games. It's been on for the last few months, and it's ending today, and there's this huge party being thrown by the emperor, and as time travelers from the future, you are invited as Domitian's special guests. So we leave the forum, and we head on our way, and we pass through this recently constructed, only been up for a couple of years at this point. This is the Arch of Titus. If you've been to Rome, you might have walked under this. You would have taken a photo just like this. And as we pass underneath it, you can see depicted in the arch is the destruction of, Rome, of, of Jerusalem, the looting of the temple that happened Just a a couple of decades ago, maybe 12-something years ago, that happened a couple thousand kilometers away. We're escorted into the Colosseum onto a large patio, and there are a hundred or so people there. There are finely dressed senators, and with the senators, there are all of their slaves and their escorts and everyone that they have brought with them. And then on a temporary throne is Emperor Domitian himself, surrounded by his Praetorian guard, dressed in purple. We sit down to a meal. It is a weird 
meal. It is exotic meats, it is exotic fruits, and there is enough wine in the area to fill a pool. You ask for water, and I remind you that the water here is probably going to kill you, so we go thirsty. And, and by the way, to throw out into sort of my wife and my dad, who will love this bit, the only way that we're able to communicate is because I have one of those little Star Trek communicator badger things that let me understand Latin, but you have no idea what's going on. You are just going off of the body language, off of the kind of the gestures that people are making I can communicate, which is a good thing that you invited me to come along with you in this little time travel journey. A messenger comes to our table at the end of the meal and says, the emperor is, is glad that you are here and would like to hear a report. He wants to hear about the state of the Roman Empire in the 21st century. And I tell you what the messenger has asked, and you look at me, and you go, you better not stuff this up because we're at the Colosseum and it's the end of 100 days of game. And if you do this wrong, we're going to end up in the gore on the arena floor. So watch what you say. And so I begin. Your Excellency, to understand the future of Rome, I first need to rehearse a bit of recent history. On our way here, we pass beneath the Arch of Titus, your late brother, the one that you commissioned to have built to celebrate and commemorate Rome's defeat of the Jewish rebellion. And while it is true that your legions decimated the Jewish people, and while it is true that they destroyed the Jewish temple, the God of the Jews escaped unscathed, and Domitian eventually Rome will embrace that Jewish God, and all of the Roman Empire will come to accept that your Roman gods are, in fact, no gods at all. The future emperor, emperor, our future emperor, years from now, will oversee the destruction of all of your Roman temples. It will make it against the law to sacrifice animals to your gods. will disband the priesthood. And as I say this, the crowd starts to erupt. And you're looking at me going, what did you say? We told you to watch it. I continue as the emperor calls for silence from those surrounding. And he says, how? How can that be? And I said, to explain this, I need to take you a little bit further back in time. About half a century ago, 50 or so years, a man came out of the wilderness. His name was John. And he said that there would be someone coming after him who would be doing something in the world that would be for the world, and it would be a game changer. And he upset a lot of people because he drew this huge crowd in Jerusalem and he got on the wrong side of Herod, Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And so Herod had him beheaded. But before he was beheaded, he made this great declaration that this person was going to come. Another would come who would do an amazing thing in the world for the world. And before he was beheaded, Jesus of Nazareth steps onto the shores of the Jordan River. And he started a few years of ministry. He spoke of a new kingdom, a kingdom of God. And he spoke with such authority, and he performed healings and miracles. And there was a huge crowd that followed him. You thought John the Baptist had a big crowd. You've got nothing on Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi. 
he got on the wrong side of his own people. He was rejected by the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. He was arrested. He was condemned. He was questioned before your very own Pontius Pilate. I see that here with us is Senator Tacitus. Where we're from, Senator Tacitus is a historian of this era, and he will vouch that everything that I'm saying is true. He can confirm that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified the way you crucify people. However, he will also confirm that that should have been the end of Jesus of Nazareth, but it wasn't the end. That was only the beginning, because three days after he was put in the tomb in the way that Jewish people measure days, the morning after Passover, people went to the tomb to find it open and empty. And at first, people thought grave robbers had attacked or had taken um, things from the tomb, but that didn't make any sense because Jesus was a rabbi. He was poor, and there was the things that were buried with Jesus weren't the things that were missing. His body wasn't there. And then the rumors started to spread. First, it was individuals, and then it was handfuls of people, then tens, eventually dozens and hundreds of people claimed to have seen Jesus alive. And his resurrection galvanized their courage. And they spread the news that indeed, as Jesus had said in his ministry, that the kingdom of God had come. A kingdom that was not of this world, but was for this world. And they were calling Jesus king, and they were calling Jesus their Lord. Many of his closest followers were arrested, and they were beaten. Many of them put to death. But they persisted, and their confidence was contagious, Their their confidence was so convincing that this new way of life spread. Even now, Domitian, you know that people in this city are gathering in their own apartments, in gardens, by the river, and they are worshipping not Caesar, not you. They are worshipping Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi from Galilee. And Domitian, for the next couple hundred years, Rome and every empire, sorry, and every emperor after you will do everything in your power to kill off this Nazarene sect. You will use the might of your army to do your best, but ultimately your efforts will fail. And though Jesus of Nazareth never came to your glorious city, one day his name, his likeness, And his symbol will be on buildings all over Rome. In fact, over the very gate that you yourself came into the Colosseum in just a couple of hours ago before this party, the Emperor's Gate in the Colosseum, some of you might have been there, there will hang a cross, a great wooden cross that no longer represents the power and the ruthlessness of Rome, but now represents the power and love of the Jewish God, Yahweh. There is silence in the crowd. This is impossible. The cross, a symbol of love, we kill people on these. The temples, the Roman temples, our way of life destroyed. Jupiter to be replaced by the God of the Jews. A Jewish rabbi who has been dead for half a century, is going to be worshipped 
by the empire that executed him? There is silence. They're stunned. Before they can say anything, I continue. I look Domitian in the eye and I say, As for you, O great Domitian, you, along with all of your other emperors, your accomplishments, everything like that, will be reduced to a paragraph or two in our modern textbooks. People will study you, but that's about it. There is one exception to this, 158 days early. Caesar Augustus will get a mention every year in homes and in places of worship around the world. But again, not for his accomplishments, not for what he did, but every year at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And Caesar Augustus is mentioned as a footnote in that tale. Jesus, whose words will be collected and distributed more widely than all of the Roman emperors combined, and as as impossible as it must be for you to grapple with, Jesus of Nazareth will be the most influential and revered man who ever lived. This Emperor Domitian is the future of the Roman Empire. Rome is not eternal. But there is a God who is eternal. And it was his temple that your brother Titus destroyed. And it was his son that your governor, Pilate, crucified. But Domitian, in the end, it was his sovereign purpose that your empire advanced. And then I sit down. And there is silence. This goes beyond offensive for where we are. And then slowly, ever so slowly, a smile cracks over Emperor Domitian's face. And then he bursts into laughter. And because everybody is taking their cue from him, Everybody else bursts into laughter, but nobody's really quite sure why. And then he grabs his cup and he raises it and he says a toast to the time travelers from the future, the storytellers from the future. And he says, brilliant, you had me believing you right up till the end of your tale. He calls for the music and the party resumes. He comes over to our table himself. And again, he says to me and I translate to you, That was most entertaining. Most entertaining. I insist that you join me again tomorrow for dinner. But this time, no more lies. Don't go with the fanciful stories. I want the truth. I need to know what the future holds for our glorious empire and for this, for Rome, our eternal city. What happened... Not what we believe, but what happened is inconceivable. It's impossible. What happened, no one could have seen coming. What happened, no one could orchestrate. What happened, no one could understand. But it happened, and Jesus predicted it. This is why you should follow him, because in the hot Syrian sun, he said to a group of people who had no future and no hope under the heel of that Roman empire, he said, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, 
my congregation, my movement, I will do this. And the gates of Hades, death itself, will not overcome it. And it didn't. And it won't. What happened is amazing. And this is the narrative that we are a part of. This ecclesia, this is us. A couple thousand years later, this thing is still going. And we have a little part to play in this grand story. There's a book that came out at the start of last year called 12 Rules for Life. I love this book because the 12th rule, spoiler alert, is you should pet every cat that you come across in a street. I just think that's amazing. But Jordan B. Peterson wrote this book, and in it I want to share this quote, which I just think is really cool. It's a bit long, but bear with me. Here it is. Christianity, Jordan writes, achieved the well-nigh impossible, because it was impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing. Everybody was level. It rendered them equal before God, and before the law, he continues, it is in fact nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation. This came from the church, such that the ownership and absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. And this next bit is my favorite bit, and it's why I wanted to share this quote with you. Because what we take for granted as just business as usual, what we take for granted as just the normal way of doing things, was so not the way of doing things. We forget, Jordan writes, that the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history. Throughout most of our history, owning people was the way to do it. That might meant right, that if you had the gold, you got to make the rules. That was the way of doing things, and Christianity flipped that upside down. The society that was produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones that it replaced. It objected to infanticide, prostitution, to the principle that might meant right, and it insisted that women were as valuable as men. Again, we just think that, of course, women are the same as men, but history doesn't show that. It demanded that even a society's enemies were to be regarded as human. That was not the way you did things back in the day. But Christianity flipped that upside down. All of this was asking the impossible, but it happened. It happened. It's amazing. As Jesus was going about his ministry, as he was headed to Jerusalem right before what we would come to know as Easter, right? Passover weekend. As he's heading in, his followers knew he was doing something great. As he's talking about this great kingdom that he was going to establish, and they were asking, God, who? we get that you're going to be king, we get that you're going to be Lord Jesus, that's going to be you, but who gets to be number two, who gets to be number three, who's sitting right and left when you come into your glory? And Jesus had to sit them down and goes, guys, you still don't have it. We're flipping this thing upside down. If you want to be the greatest, you must serve. I have come. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but for himself to serve, to give his life for the ransom of many. Those words, so bizarre, so unrealistic to those original first century hearers, but they changed everything. Changed everything. 
Jesus, in his most famous sermon, right, you'll know these words. We sing songs about these words and that this. If you've been in church for a long time, you've known these words since you were in the womb. You are the salt of the earth. And to Jesus' first audience, he's like, no, we're not. We have no impact, no influence on culture at all. The salt is Rome. The salt call the shots. Rome are in charge here. We are under oppression. Jesus said, no, you are the salt of the earth. You have influence. But if the salt loses its saltiness, in fact, if you just go along with the flow, if you just keep on with where culture is at, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. Jesus continues, you are the light of the world. The world is dark, but I've called you to be a light. And everyone's going, we're not light. The light is Rome. Rome is the city that's on the hill. Rome is the one that everyone's taking the cues from. No one knows we're here. We're going to be just this footnote in history if we even make it to the footnote section of history. No one is going to be paying attention to what a group of Jews are doing in the middle of the desert. And Jesus said, you're the light of the world. So let your lights shine before others that they may see your good deeds, that they may see the different way that you are living, how you treat women, how you treat the enemies, how you handle your money, how you, when a plague sweeps through your village, you don't leave because you're not afraid of death. You stick around and you care for those who are sick, even after everyone else has long gone. You take in the babies that have been left by the Romans and you raise them as your own. When people see those good deeds, they'll connect the dots. And remember, this you isn't just them a couple thousand years ago. Jesus says this to us. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to live different. We're called to put on display these deeds so that people will connect the dots and glorify our Father in heaven. We get to be stewards of the church, the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what keeps me going. This is why I have loved being the student pastor these last few years. It's why I've loved being on Rima the last decade or so. And it's why even though I'm no longer a professional Christian and that I'm no longer in Christian media and that you know, next week I hand over the reins of leading our student ministry to somebody else, I'm still fired up about the local church. And you should be as well. Because... It's because of what's happened in the past that we get to be here, and it's because of what we do that people will be here long after us. So here is the choice that you have. You can take from church what you can get from church. You could leave it weaker than it was. You could put it on the sideline. You could make it have no influence, no effect on culture. Or you can engage. You can actively participate in bringing God's kingdom more and more into the world, into your workplace, into your school, into your uni, into your families, into culture around you. You can actively engage to ensure that the church, as it has for a couple thousand years, continues to influence the conscience of culture. 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched something that was in the world for the world. He will keep it going. He will not give this up. My call to you today is that you get a part to play in that. We get to steward the church 
for this moment in history. We don't have long. We're not going to be here for hundreds of years, but someone's going to be here. And what we do in this moment matters. Against all odds, the church changed the world once. It flipped things upside down. And in the words of Paul, the challenge is this. And here's how I close. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And the audience that Paul wrote this to, they labored so that we could gather. They labored so that the word of God would travel to our shores They labored so that the church would exist today. Our labor is to keep the church here for the next generation and for the generation after that. This is, in fact, the opportunity of a lifetime. So much hangs in the balance. So don't count yourself out. If you give here, if you serve here, if you are connected into a small group, if you are engaging with people at work or at school and inviting them to come to youth group or inviting them to come to church on Sundays or inviting them to Alpha, which gets started in a couple of weeks, or this week, if you're inviting, if you're engaging, you are playing a part in advancing God's kingdom that Jesus established. And we should never give that up. Let me pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you, as I said, for this gathering, that we have a part to play in the furthering of your movement, your ecclesia here on earth. And God, I pray that this morning something would stir in all of us or that you would continue to stir in all of us a desire to see this thing grow to see more of your kingdom, not less. That, God, we want to leave the church in a better state than we found it. That as history tells us, the church changed culture. And, God, we have the potential to change culture still. So go with us into school tomorrow, into work tomorrow, into our friend groups, into the communities that we're a part of? Would we go as different people, as the salt, as the ones who are doing things different, and God, as light, as proud members of your church, that people would see us living different and would connect the dots that your name would be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.